0: Let us bow again in prayer. Those who were once in darkness have seen a great light. Lord, it's easy for us who have been raised in Christian homes or even a culture that is aware of Christian truth Lord, it is easy for us to take for granted the blessing of Your Word that has given us light. So many generations of people throughout the world do not have this light. And they grope in the darkness trying to find Your will. Trying to find a hope and a meaning for life. And yet, You have given us Your Word. We have it. Lord, help us not to take it for granted. Help us to treasure it for the amazing treasure that it is. Lord, that reminds us of truths like we just sang. That because You are God, we can be still. That is one of the most precious truths, Lord. To consider Your sovereign power and goodness. And to know You love us, again, not because of what we've done, but because we've been forgiven through Christ. That we have Your love because of Him. And I pray that that truth would be all the more recognized in our hearts as we look at today's passage. Give me grace that Your Word would be clarified. And give grace to the hearers that we might know how to apply it appropriately to our lives. We ask these things in the name of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. And we will be reading verses 1-6. through 6. First Peter chapter 3. Likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair and putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Merriam-Webster defines beauty as the quality or aggregate of qualities in a person or thing that gives pleasure to the senses or pleasurally exalts the mind or spirit. Simply put, beauty then is that which is pleasing or that which brings pleasure to the beholder. And when considering beauty in reference to women, powerful, courageous are probably not the words that might initially come to our mind. And yet, this is the kind of feminine beauty that brings pleasure to God, as this passage states, that which is precious in God's sight. This is because this sort of beauty is reflective of the accomplished work of of Christ, God's Son. And this is seen in the context of this passage. Note the first word there in chapter 3, likewise. The word draws our attention back to the context of what uh, Tim talked about last week. The example of submission that we follow is the one who holds ultimate authority in his hands. The one who controls everything in the universe. Jesus, the ultimate authority, subjected himself to the Father's will, despite the personal consequences to himself. Because Jesus came to, be, came to serve, rather, than to be served. And so our ultimate example of authority is also our ultimate example of submission, we're called to follow his example. And this shows that biblical submission, as well as biblical leadership, authority, Christ had both. They look the same in the heart. The godly leader and the godly follower are going to be the same internally. It's the same heart that characterizes their decisions. We see this in Christ. The first word, likewise, is important because it demonstrates, again going back to Jesus, that this sort of submission is not performed out of fear of the authorities. But rather it's done out of a love for God and out of a love for his people. Because again, submission is an issue of the heart. It's volitional. It's not forced. It's a choice that is managed by courage rather than fear. And Peter makes that explicit in verse 6. So since the gospel frees us from insecurity and we have no reason to fear any longer. Because we have placed our confidence in Christ. We can be assured of God's love for us because of what he has done for us. And so, Peter begins, likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands. This presents the command. Peter is addressing wives. This is just the cross-section of Christians Peter is now addressing. Previously, Peter spoke to Christians in general, calling us to submit to all authorities. Then he spoke directly to slaves, calling them to submit to their masters. And later on, Peter will address husbands. But here he is addressing wives. He says, be subject to... Some translations say be submissive, which essentially means obey those who are in authority over you. So wives are to be subject to their husbands' authority. But note also that it is to their own husbands, very explicitly. So it's overtly not saying that all men have authority over all women. It's going out of its way to say, to not say that. See, some have gravely misapplied this passage and they incorrectly infer that a single woman needs to be subject to men in general, but that is a gross misapplication. That's not what it's saying. It's going out of its way not to say that. He says, to your own husbands. This command is given in specific reference to the context of a family where a woman has covenanted to marry her husband. And in a biblical marriage, what she is covenanting to do is she's, com- she's committing to follow his leadership. Peter continues. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. This presents the reason for this command. Which is evangelism. That's what Peter has in mind here. Live an honorable life for the sake of those who do not obey Christ. Specifically, here is referring to husbands who are disobedient to the word. It means those who have rejected the message of the gospel. But he says that an unbelieving husband can be one can be convinced of the reality of the gospel by witnessing the real fruit of the gospel's work in their Christian wives. Since so they could be one without a word through the respectful and pure conduct. Now this doesn't mean that, that a woman shouldn't say anything that says without a word. But rather, what it's saying is their conduct will confirm the reality of the power of the gospel in their lives. They don't have to present an intense apologetic for the reality of the resurrection. The reality of the resurrection will be seen in the fact that their wives no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And you have to love the compassionate heart of Peter here. And this could easily be missed. But recognize Peter understands all the pain that may result from this command. He understands what he is calling the believers to. He himself submitted himself to authorities and ended up crucified. He has seen his friends suffer. He knows What the repercussions of submission to ungodly authorities might be. But also, as much as Peter loves his flock, he also knows what he said in chapter 1 that the believer's inheritance is guaranteed. He understands that we are sojourners, this isn't our home, this is not where our hope lies. Suffering's expected, but there is no hope for those who don't believe. There's no hope for them. There's no second chance. Peter knows that the cost of submission, as painful as it might be, is still incomparable to the cost of unbelief. And God the Father knows this as well. That's why He sent His Son. Jesus knows the cost of unbelief. That's why He came. That's why He took your penalty upon the cross. Because He knows without that act, none will be saved from the wrath of God and those who have not yet heard the gospel those who have not been convinced of the reality of the gospels are are in of the gospel are in the same state they're in darkness and all that they are waiting is the wrath of god after they die peter knows the cost but it's still incomparable To the cost of a lack of faith in Christ. And this is biblical evangelism. Biblical evangelism is not simply about proclaiming with our words, but also with our lives. Especially with our lives. So use words. Prove the gospel with the words, but also with your life. Biblical evangelism is costly. But it's also extremely powerful. Remember what Paul said in Colossians chapter 1. Paul understood these things. It's why he lived the way he lived. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. In my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in, the, in Christ's afflictions. Strange phrase. What he means is I am giving a, a personal presentation of the cost that Christ took. As Christ was willing to take affliction for the sake of the church, Paul says, I want to visibly demonstrate to you, this is how much Christ loves you, so that you might believe. Notice verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery that had been hidden for ages and generations, but is now revealed to a saint. So Paul is saying, I don't only want to proclaim to you with my words. I want to show you the reality of the gospel in my life. So that you might be saved from the wrath of God. Unless you say, oh, well, that's Paul. He was an apostle. Of course he had such courage. I'm just an ordinary Christian. Well, consider also what Paul said. Through the Christians in Thessalonica. As he commended them, he says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. And note how the Holy Spirit demonstrated himself. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, how you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. As the Macedonians and the Achaeans came into contact with these Thessalonians, they, they declared, this is real. You really believe this because you're willing to suffer. Paul saying, you followed my example and you followed the example of Christ. And notice what happened. The word of God spread. And people were saved. Probably the most influential person in Christian history, aside from the Apostle Paul, was St. Augustine of Hippo. And Augustine of Hippo came to Christ largely through the through witnessing the amazing conduct of his mother, Monica. And in book nine of his confessions, Augustine devotes particular time to describing his mother and the powerful influence she had on his life. And I want you to read this excerpt. And keep in mind that Augustine, when he wrote his confessions, is writing them as a prayer to God. He's addressing God in them. And so when he writes this about her, he says this to the Lord. It was you who taught her to obey her parents rather than they who taught her to obey you. And when she was old enough, they gave her in marriage to a man whom she served as her Lord. She never ceased to try and gain him for you as a convert. For the virtues with which you had adorned her and for which he he respected, loved and admired her, were like so many voices constantly speaking to him of you he was unfaithful to her but her patience was so great that his infidelity never became a cause of quarreling between them for she looked to you to show him mercy hoping that chastity would come with faith and though he was remarkably kind he had a hot temper But my mother knew better than to say or do anything to resist him when he was angry. His anger was unreasonable. She used to wait until he was calm and composed and then took the opportunity of explaining what she had done. And in the end, she won her husband for you as a convert in the very last days of his life on earth. After his conversion, she no longer had to grieve over those faults which had tried her patience before he was a Christian. She was also a servant of your servants. Those of them who knew her praised you, honored you, and loved you in her. For they could feel your presence in her heart and her holy conversation, which gave rich proof of it. What Augustine doesn't say there is that took place over the course of 30 years. She prayed and agonized for 30 years for the salvation of her husband and children. Her husband came to Christ months before his death. And shortly after, Augustine, who was also at that time living a very prolific life, also submitted his life to Christ. And as he declares in his confessions, largely because of the influence of his mother. And understand, though, that Augustine loved his mother. He didn't take pleasure... In recounting the agonies that he saw her go through. He took no joy in recalling the torment that she had to endure at the hands of her father. And yet he treasured her amazing example of love. Beyond words. And so likewise she also serves as a fitting example of what Peter is writing here. The next thing Peter explains is the nature of true spiritual beauty which really described what how he described his mom, as Augustine described his mom in that last paragraph. Peter explains the nature of true spiritual beauty by noting that it is not particularly external but primarily internal. He writes this, Do not let your Adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Peter here explains what this spiritual adornment looks like. The beauty of a Christian woman is not primarily external. Many women in this world strive to gain beauty through wearing nice clothes, exercising their body, putting on makeup or lotions, adorning themselves with jewelry. But this is not where the, Christians, the Christian woman's beauty really lies. It is not primarily external, but internal. And recognize the point isn't that women can't do these things, but that she should recognize The temporary and vain nature of such things. As uh, Proverbs 31 states, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but the woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. The point is that such beauty will not last because it's tied to this temporary world. It's temporary beauty. It's a very insecure investment. So again, pursuing external beauty isn't wrong. There's nothing wrong with it at all, in and of itself. It's just not that significant in light of our heavenly hope, all that Peter's talked about so far. So imagine, just to illustrate, that some big-name developer has uh, began negotiation to purchase the, of the plot of land where you currently live. And so you find out that you're going to have to move out within a couple of years or so, since they're planning to demolish your house and, or to pave the way for some new construction. And living in Oregon, you recognize that the weather has taken its toll on the exterior to the extent that you, your, your house really could use another coat of paint. And you have complete freedom to go out and buy another coat of paint for your house, even though it's about to be destroyed. Or you can invest that time and that money, into investing in interior decor that will be useful not only for your current house, but also for the new house that you'll move into shortly. Again, the real issue is how you would like to invest. You can invest in short-term investments that have temporary results, or you can invest in a long-term investment that has, as Peter says, imperishable results. He says this, this beauty exists in the hidden person of the heart. Literally, the hidden of the man is what it says. The word simply refers to that which can't be seen. That is, it's not superficial. Instead, it's substantive. It's what, it's what defines that person internally. Their heart. It's not something you can paste on, either through clothing or through a pasted smile. It's also imperishable. Peter uses this word imperishable a number of times in his letter. uh, Before it was in chapter 1, verse 4, where he used it to describe our eternal inheritance. He then uses it in verse 23 that describes the Seed by which we have been born again. And the logic he presents says, Since the Christian woman has been born again through imperishable seed, For an imperishable inheritance, shouldn't she pursue imperishable beauty as well? Peter further defines this beauty as a gentle, quiet spirit. Some translations define it as a meek and quiet spirit. In fact, it's the same word that Jesus used to describe himself in Matthew when he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. The word means strength that is controlled. Soldiers used it in reference to their wild stallions that had to be trained for war. So it's not a word that connotes weakness. In fact, it connotes just the opposite. It connotes the ability to control one's emotions and thoughts, submitting them to the Word of God. Like a trained stallion would, would submit its visceral desires to that, which, that of the person who is leading them. Strength controlled. And this is how it ties to the next word. Quiet. It pertains to a quiet, peaceful existence or attitude. It's an internal thing, again. It's reflective of what we read earlier in Psalm 46. To be still and know the sovereignty of God, that He is in control. My mind was also reminded of Psalm 131. This is a psalm that's meant a lot to me in troubled times. What I use to quiet my soul. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high, I do not occupy myself with things that are too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. So it is not referring to the silent types. It's not saying that you need to be an introvert. You need to be quiet. You need to be shy. It's not saying that a godly woman should never speak. Instead, it's saying she should pursue internal peace, especially when things are hard, especially when things are chaotic. She should pursue internal peace because, like her Savior, who was described verses earlier, she can entrust her soul to a loving and faithful Creator. And those who can face the trials of life with meekness and peace show that they truly have peace because they trust in the sovereign goodness of God. As I was studying I was all, this week, I, I was also reminded of one of my favorite Christian heroes, or heroines in this fact, Gladys Alward, who was a missionary to China in the previous century. And during her second year in Yangtze, China, Gladys happened to be summoned by the Mandarin, who was kind of like the governor of that town, that village she was living in. Because a, a riot had broken out in the prison. And she arrived and found that the convicts were rampaging in the prison courtyard. Already several of the prisoners had been killed. And the soldiers who were there were afraid to intervene. And the prison warden said, I can't go in. They will kill me. Gladys said, well, if I go in, what are they going to do to me? And he says, how can they kill you? You go around telling everybody that you have the living God inside you. You preach it everywhere, in the streets and in the villages. And so at that, Gladys prayed. She said, oh God, give me strength. And she went in. And as she went in, she saw there were several dead bodies in the courtyard of the prison and blood was everywhere. A convict with a meat axe with blood on it was ready to strike her. And as she saw him, she prayed in her heart, God, do your will. And she stepped toward the man and she commanded, hand me that axe. And suddenly his face dissolved into meekness and he handed her the axe. And after she had calmed the men and consulted with them, she returned to the warden and reported the grievances that had caused this riot. She said the prisoners were housed in cramped conditions with nothing to do and with limited food. And so she suggested that they be provided with the opportunity to work to earn money for their food. And after some of the warden's friends uh, then donated some loons, Looms So they could weave cloths. And his friends also donated some grain. And eventually the conditions improved. And after this event, the people stopped calling Gladys the foreign devil. Instead, they referred to her as de. I could be saying that wrong, you can correct me. Which means virtuous one. Because they saw this is not... A woman whose strength comes naturally, but a virtue, and a supernatural virtue at that. This event gave her credibility, so as she would teach and as she would preach, the door was paved for greater evangelistic opportunities in China. And this sort of powerful, courageous beauty is what Peter says is precious in the sight of God. The word means pertaining to being of great value or worth. In fact, it's the same word that is used to describe the jar of alabaster that had perfume that was shattered in in order to anoint Jesus' feet. And when his disciples saw that, they saw the the alabaster jar broken, they flipped out because they said that money was like a year's worth of wages that was spent on Jesus It was so precious. It's the same word that's used here. The word was also used previously in 1 Peter to describe our faith that is more precious though it's tested by fire. More precious than gold though it's tested by fire. It would describe the precious blood of Christ. It also described... Christ as the living stone who was rejected by men but in the sight of God was chosen and precious. Notice how that word is applied. to the most precious things in God's sight. Christ. Our faith. The bottom line this is extremely precious in the sight of God. Whereas people might ooh and ah in our day over fancy cars or a nice house or you know, beautiful clothes, what God, the infinitely wise one, finds precious is this gentle, quiet spirit. And men, if this is what God considers precious, isn't this what we should consider precious as well? What we should admire in women. In order to support his point, Peter then offers the general example of faithful women in the ancient past. And he specifically points to the example of Sarah, Abraham's wife. He says, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And it turns out that Sarah actually is a perfect example here to use. Because not only was she the wife of Abraham, the father of God's chosen people. She's a fitting example because she chose to submit to a man who, although we know was full of faith, he was also a man who made some incredibly foolish decisions. This was something that Chad pointed out in our text talk earlier this week. See, Sarah chose to follow a man who nearly lost her to Pharaoh. When he told her to pretend to be his wife. Or sorry. To pretend to be his sister. (laughs) If only he would have been honest. And said it was his wife. Abraham's failure to trust the Lord to protect him. Resulted in a plague upon Egypt. And nearly in adultery. Unless God had intervened. The consequences would have been devastating. Apparently. Apparently. Abraham didn't learn his lesson the first time because years later he did the same thing when confronted by Abimelech, one of the kings in Canaan. And the results were similar. Abraham also foolishly agreed to accept Hagar as a surrogate mother, albeit this time it was at Sarah's request. But the decision also had devastating consequences. My point being that Abraham did not always make the best decisions. In fact, he made decisions that were incredibly dangerous and incredibly destructive. He also made good decisions too. My point isn't to write them off entirely, but there was reasons for why Sarah could excuse not submitting, not trusting her husband. Very good reasons. And yet... She did. Sarah still submitted to him, calling him Lord. That's a reference to her statement in G- Genesis eighteen twelve. And it's important to point out how things worked out for them, despite these blunders that Abraham made. God still worked through those situations to bring about his purposes. God still protected Abraham and he protected Sarah. Despite the choices that were made, which is why Peter says next, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Peter points out two things that mark a woman of faith here in this verse you do good and you're not frightened. To do good means to engage in performing good works, just to do good deeds. Peter used the phrase earlier in 2.20, he's going to use it again in 4.19, noting that the Christian life is to be characterized by good works, even in the midst of frightening and uncertain situations. I like particularly 1 Peter 4.19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good this points to the real threat to obeying Christ and submitting. Peter wouldn't have said this if it wasn't an issue. If it wasn't a threat. If there wasn't something to be afraid of. The real threat to obeying Christ and submitting to our authorities, though, is fear. The real threat is fear. Fear is why everyone struggles to submit. Not just wives, not just slaves, but all of us. We might be afraid that our leaders are untrustworthy. We might be afraid that they don't understand us. They might be afraid they don't have our interests in mind. We might be afraid that their decisions are going to result in destructive consequences. There are multiple causes of fear. And we would argue, in light of those things, against submission, which is why Peter brings it up. He says, do not be, uh, be led by fear, but instead we should trust in the sovereign goodness of God. Note 2 Timothy seven, where Paul tells Timothy, who was struggling with fear, he says, God had gave us a, a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. We haven't been given a spirit of fear. We are not ruled by a spirit of fear. We are ruled by the Holy Spirit. In other words, we're ruled by doing what the Spirit would have us do, not by leading to fear. As he says in Romans 8, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That is, you don't need to be afraid because you can cry out to your father. Notice how he continues though. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children then heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Provided that we suffer with him. But it's helpful to recognize the greatest miseries of mankind come from the dread of trouble. Rather than the presence of trouble. The greatest miseries of mankind often come from the dread of trouble rather than the presence of trouble. I just finished reading a book called The Heart and the Fist, which was given to me by one of my students. It was written by a former Navy SEAL named Eric Gretens. And the most memorable story that stood out to me in the book that was discussed was during his SEAL training. It happened to be on the first day of what was called Hell Week, which was just this grueling, extremely intense training that they would go through, the worst of all their training. He says that the trainees were standing on the beach and they watched the sun go down as the instructors warned them again and again how difficult the next few days were going to be. The the soldiers had already endured tremendous pain and cold and trial in their training so far. But as they stood there on the ocean shore, watching the sun go down, greetings writes, He said, something broke in our class. And he watched as man after man quit even before the evening had started. And then he offers this explanation of the event. They quit, I believe, because they allowed their fear to overwhelm them. As the sun went down and the thoughts of what was to come grew stronger and stronger, They focused on all the pain that they thought they might have to endure and how difficult it might be. They were standing on the beach, perfectly at ease, reasonably warm. But they thought about the fact that they might be very cold and very pained and they thought that they might not be able to make it. The fear built and built and built until they quit. He said, at no other instance in all their training did they have so many men quit at one time than at that moment. Fear, fear is powerful. This, dest- this demonstrates the destructive power of fear when we allow it to, to rule our thinking rather than the word. Because when we do let fear rule our thinking, instead of trusting in the sovereign goodness of God, we're going to quickly crumble will quickly yield to temptation. But the contrast is also true. When we face our fears with confidence that God is in control of what's going to happen to us, and we hold fast to His promises, we prove the reality of what we believe. We prove the reality of the gospel. And such powerful, courageous beauty is extremely precious in the sight of God. And as unbelievers witness that courage, again, courage that's not rooted in in just discipline, courage that's rooted in confidence in the sovereign power of God and His love for you, it proves the reality of the gospel to an unbelieving world. But again, this, this sort of courage, this sort of imperishable beauty, it's not created in our own strength and our own wills. It's something that can only be brought about by the power of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. But that's why it's so powerful. Because it's, because it's spiritually wrought. It can't be taken away. As long as we keep our focus on the reality of what we know in God's Word. And when we do, The effects are dynamic. Let's pray. Lord, Peter does not hide the reality of how difficult submission is. He knows it. Lord, we're comforted that He's willing to go out of His way to reassure us of Your promises despite the consequences that may come. Lord, we love Your Word because it is is more sure than our own thinking. It is more sure than even what we view in life. Lord, regardless of what we see, we know that Your Word never fails. Lord, I pray that You would bring about in us such confident courage, such confident faith, that we would resist fear, we would prove the reality of the Holy Spirit's work in our life, the reality of the Gospel, so that we might be useful in reaching an unbelieving world. That we would preach and we would live in such a way that your gospel is undeniable. But God, we can't do this without your help. Use us to accomplish your work. We ask these things in Christ's name.